0: Hey everyone, I am so excited for our brand new sermon series. I think the the lens cap is still on. There we go. We should probably start that one over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is this me starting it over? Hey everyone, I am so excited for our brand new sermon series. Oh, but- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot. I forgot the microphone. Here, if you just wanna mix that under. Oh, that's <laughs> Just okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. okay, hello, testing, testing, one, two, <laughs> testing I'll just put this in your back pocket for you. You sure you got it all? Yeah. Okay, okay. I'll- okay. I'll- okay, yep Hey everyone, I am so excited Brand new sermon series About The audio, I just checked the audio and it seems like it kind of messed up So we're going to try a different mic All about how we use our- oh. I dropped it, it was, I dropped it a little bit Hey everyone! Today I am so that excited. That is too close to your mouth. All about our words. Hey, it's still not sounding right. Is that battery dead? Okay, I think I, I think this one this one I got the battery and that'll work better. Well, that I mean that feels excessive. <laughs> that one's sounding muffled. I don't know what's happening, but it's sounding. Mu- hey everyone! Let's try, more, let's try this one more time. And I, I, think, I think I got it. Okay. Let's cool, just, cool, let's cool, try cool. One more time. Okay. okay. All right. Hey, hey, Brad! I'm here, man. You ready for me? I'm uh, ready to be in the video where you want me. What? What video? The video. The mic'd up video. I'm Mike. Mic'd up. Mike, like microphone. All about our words. I. Whose phone is that? Hey, uh, Brad. It's Mike. Um, you sure you don't need me in that video? It, it mic'd up. On... It's microphoned up, not Mike Palmered up. Okay. The name of the series is. Yeah, it's me, guys. I just. First of all, it's been three weeks of that video. I want to thank you for still laughing at it. Like it's just. It, it makes our effort feel you know, like worth it, uh, second of all, I, I usually don 't like think as hard about like what i 'm going to wear, but like I was like, I cannot wear the same outfit in the video as I, but we did that like four weeks ago, so i don 't know. Thank you all so much for being here it 's so good to see you all. Thank you to those of you joining us online as well. Now uh, for those of you I haven 't met, my name is Brad Linder, and i 'm on staff here at Life Point Church. And we are in part three of our sermon series called Miked Up. And in this series, we've been asking a question what if you were mic'd up? What if everyone could hear everything you say all of the time, unfiltered and unedited? Two words stress, diarrhea. <laughs> TMI? Yeah, we're just starting strong. <laughs> but think about it, if you were mic'd up, how, how would that change or how should that change the way that you use your words? Throughout this series, uh, we, we've been talking about how seriously the Bible takes how we use our words because our words are profoundly powerful. Our words have the power to build people up or tear them down. Our words have the power to give people joy or to deepen their despair. And as Jason showed us last week, our words can fill people with incredible hope, but our words can also crush people's dreams. In 2002, the singing competition American Idol made its television debut. And every year for the last 20 years, can you believe that show is still on after 20 years 100,000 people audition for the show. Every year, 100,000 people audition for American Idol. But for many contestants, their dream of being America's next music superstar is quickly and horrifically crushed. As you probably know, if you're familiar with the show at all, the judges on that show can be absolutely ruthless in their criticism. Simon Cowell was known as one of the most terrifying of the bunch In one episode, he told a contestant, last year I described someone as being the worst singer in America. I think you're the worst singer in the world. Like, can you imagine saying that to somebody's face? Like, not just in a text between a mutual friend, but like to their face? The thing is, he's not exactly wrong. Some of the contestants are objectively terrible vocalists. But the way that he communicates that truth seems hurtful, even hateful at times. On the other hand, I wonder, how did these contestants get here in the first place? I imagine all their friends, their family members, and co-workers. And I wonder, how is it that no one has ever told them that they probably shouldn't go on a singing competition viewed by millions of people? How is it that the people who love them the most have failed to tell them the truth? In chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he instructs the church to speak the truth in love. But there's a tension that we often experience when attempting to speak the truth in love because sometimes telling the truth doesn't feel very loving. Other times, loving people might feel like it comes at the expense of telling them the truth. So if as followers of Jesus we're instructed to speak the truth in love, then how do we do it? In particular, how do we maintain our biblical convictions, what we believe God has communicated to all of humanity? How do we maintain our biblical convictions with compassion? If you have a Bible handy, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 3, and today I want to look at just one example of how Jesus balances the truth and love. And using Jesus as our model, maybe we too can discover how to speak the truth without compromising on love. Now, as a quick disclaimer, this is kind of like an intro course to speaking the truth in love. This is like a 101 level, Uh, so this could actually be a sermon series um, but this is like entry-level. We can get to graduate stuff later, uh, but today we're just going to take uh, an entry-level look at speaking the truth in love. So if you're at John chapter 8, verse 3, uh, I want to set the scene a little bit. Jesus has just arrived at the temple, and if you're kind of new to church or new to the Bible, it's kind of like a setting similar to this. I mean, not quite, but it's similar to this. And so when Jesus uh, enters the temple, a crowd of people finds him and he begins to teach the crowd. Suddenly, his sermon is interrupted by a group of Jewish lawyers known as the scribes and a group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. And it's at the beginning of this interruption that we pick up the story in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, As you do. And as they continued to ask, And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There's a lot going on in this story that could distract us from our goal this morning. How did the Pharisees know this woman committed adultery? Why didn't they also bring in the man who committed adultery? Why in the world, and what in the world, does Jesus write with his finger on the ground? And all these are interesting questions, but they don't really help us discover how to speak the truth in love. That's pretty obvious from the story that the scribes and the Pharisees are strongly opposed to adultery. I think we could all agree on that. But one of the things I find that often gets missed when uh, talking about this passage is what does Jesus think about adultery? Because you could make the argument that Jesus is even more strongly opposed to adultery than the scribes and Pharisees are. During his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Bro, bro, Jesus is not messing around. I mean, he makes the Pharisees look like they are soft on crime. If I followed Jesus' teaching on adultery, I would have had a total of zero eyeballs by the time I was 12. When it comes to adultery, let's not miss this. Jesus has a strong conviction. But despite what may sound like an extreme view on sexual sin, he doesn't push his agenda on the Pharisees or on the woman they brought into the temple. Notice he doesn't reference his famous sermon. He doesn't quote passages from the Old Testament. He doesn't even talk about adultery at all. Not to the Pharisees and not to the woman. So what's going on in the story we just read in John chapter 8? By not punishing this woman, is, is Jesus changing his position? Is, is he getting soft? Is he giving in to the dominant Roman culture that promotes a loose sexual morality? Has he been influenced by the wrong people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes with whom he routinely sits down to dinner with? And I would argue that Jesus isn't compromising his position at all. He's not backing down, he's not backsliding or flip-flopping. He hasn't abandoned his convictions. Instead, I think what's happening here is Jesus is addressing something incredibly profound. This idea that we can be right, but still be wrong at the same time. In his book, Embodied, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, yes, that's his real name, Dr. Preston Sprinkle he writes about a, a, a series of very sensitive conversations, including transgender identities, the church, and what the Bible has to say. But there's a line in his book that I think perfectly captures the essence of what Jesus is communicating here to the Pharisees and to the woman. Dr. Sprinkle writes, "We can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're wrong." We can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're wrong. And you know, sometimes you read something or you hear something, and you're like, that sounds kind of Jesus-y. I'll just go with it. And I think it's really important when we read something like this, if it resonates with us, we still have to go back to the Bible and say, is that actually what the Bible communicates? And the Apostle Paul writes something similar to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2, he writes If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Here's the thing. All those terrible contestants on American Idol, most of them probably know all the words to the song that they're trying to sing. They can probably tell you who wrote the song and why they picked that song to perform and how much it means to them. But even if they get all the lyrics right, it doesn't make them great singers. In the same way, we can memorize the whole Bible. We can believe that it is the authoritative Word of God, that it is His revelation of who He is and His created order. We, we can find the Bible incredibly life-giving and meaningful But if we get love wrong, we're just as noisy, just as irritating to God as those contestants are to the judges of American Idol. When speaking the truth in love, the question is, how do we get both the Bible right and love right? I think sometimes we choose one or the other, but how do we get the Bible right and love right? It's super important because there are really important conversations happening in our world, in our communities, and and in our churches, even here at LifePoint. These conversations involve issues like racism, gender inequality, gender identity, sexuality, abortion, cancel culture, climate change, nationalism, free speech, mental health, the effects of social media, and the list goes on and on. And hear me, no matter what side of the issues you're on, We don't have a lot of role models, whether Christian or non-Christian, that demonstrate speaking the truth in love. Instead, there are more examples of people who speak their opinions out of contempt. Thankfully, as you might imagine, Jesus is a great role model for what it looks like to speak the truth in love. And so to kind of parse this out to discover what it looks like to speak the truth in love, I want us to look at how Jesus communicates with the Pharisees. There's a lot of rich meaning that we can pull out from Jesus' short conversation with the woman. Uh, But because we're limited by time this morning, I really want to focus in on the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. So let's go back to John chapter 8, verse 4. Scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. At first glance, it may seem like the Pharisees and the scribes just want to justify stoning this poor woman. I do believe they found her in the act of adultery, however they found that out. But what is their intent? Here in in, in the passage we read, uh, their intent is to test Jesus. The Pharisees, they want to pull Jesus into a war of ideas. The Pharisees don't care about this woman. She's an object She's a means to an end. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about Jesus. They care about exerting and exercising their power. And to push their agenda, they weaponize the word of God to dehumanize this woman and and treat her simply as an issue. And like Jesus, we might get pulled into a similar war of ideas by our coworkers, our family, even our culture at large. When they bring the woman in, they try to trap Jesus into this war of ideas. If he says that the law is wrong, they can accuse him of being a false teacher. If he says the law is right and the woman should be stoned, they can accuse him of being unmerciful and unloving. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. When we get pulled into a war of ideas, have you ever felt like that? Like no matter what you say, you're going to offend somebody. Or like the Pharisees, maybe, maybe we tend to trap people in a war of ideas. We just want to talk about issues. Either way, we can get so easily trapped in talking about what the Bible has to say about the issue of a particular sin that we end up neglecting what the Bible says about people. That each of us are made in God's image, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we neglect what the Bible says about people, we neglect what the Bible says about ourselves. But notice, Jesus doesn't get caught up in the issue of adultery. He's not going to get trapped in their game. Read again how he responds to the Pharisees. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And it's subtle, but do you see what Jesus does here? He he changes the conversation, or rather, he broadens the conversation. He doesn't challenge what the scribes and Pharisees believe about adultery, because adultery isn't really the problem here. Sin is. Sin is. So Jesus broadens the conversation by talking about all sin. He he broadens their imagination beyond just one sin. Even when he talks to the woman, he, he doesn't tell her from now on, go and stop committing adultery. No, he tells her from now on, go and sin no more. It's such a broad vision that Jesus so simply casts. With one carefully worded sentence, Jesus helps the scribes and Pharisees see themselves in this woman. Yes, she has sinned, but so have they. And once they can identify with this woman, once they recognize that sin affects them as much as it does her, she's no longer an object or an issue. She's just a person with the same faults and failures as themselves. And as Jesus mediates this situation between the woman and the Pharisees, he models one of the most important, but I think most neglected. This is entry-level, 101. This is the most neglected aspect of speaking the truth in love. I'm going to start by finding common ground. Start by finding some common ground. Some of you may be familiar with the name Daryl Davis. Mr. Davis lives here in Maryland, and after graduating Howard University with a bachelor's degree in jazz, he started, a, he started a band and became known as one of the greatest blues and boogie-woogie piano players of all time. I know we got a lot of blues and boogie-woogie fans out here in the, in the congregation this morning, but if you look up the Daryl Davis band, I mean, that man can play piano. I'm not even a blues and boogie-woogie fan, and I can appreciate what he does. But over the past few years he's been interviewed by at least a dozen major news publications but it's not for his music that he's gotten so much attention. You see Daryl Davis has what many would consider an extremely unusual hobby. Especially considering he's black. For over 30 years Daryl Davis has been befriending neo-Nazis and members of the KKK. In his home he has a collection of 200 Klan robes and hoods that people have given him when they left the KKK simply because of their relationship with him. One article reports Davis collects the robes and keeps them in his home as a reminder of the dent he has made in racism by simply sitting down and having dinner with people. What a Jesusy thing to do. Daryl once told a reporter when two enemies are talking they're not fighting. It's when the talking ceases, the ground becomes fertile for violence. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, it doesn't have to be about race. It could be about anything. You'll find that you both have something in common. What's great about finding common ground is that it's both loving and honest. It's both loving and true. For Daryl and most of these men, their friendship started with a shared love of music. They would talk about their favorite bands and musicians and how they learned to play. However, the the problem with finding common ground is that it's horribly inefficient. We want people to change right away. But the people who met Daryl, they didn't change after their first conversation, not even after their second conversation, because that's not how relationships work. And that's not how the truth works. Works The kind of meaningful relationships that are required to speak the truth in love take time. A study conducted by Jeffrey Hall, who specializes in the psychology of friendship, kind of a cool gig, he found that it takes 45 hours of spending intentional time with someone to move from being an acquaintance to, to just a casual friend. He found that going from being a casual friend to a meaningful friend takes an additional 50 hours over a three-month period. And to become BFFs with somebody, it takes an additional 100 hours. That means it it takes roughly 200 hours to turn from being an acquaintance with somebody to somebody's best friend, to a close, meaningful relationship. To put that into perspective, it only takes 88 hours and 30 minutes to watch every episode of the show Friends. Friends. The point is, it takes a really long time. Real truth and real love take a really long time. Deep truth and deep love require a deep investment in people. Yet too often we settle for shallow truth and shallow love. It's easy for us to reduce the truth down to a catchphrase or a hashtag, and we strip the truth of any nuance or complexity, context, or meaning. It's easy to drop truth truth bombs on people, to drop a quick Bible verse or an opinion on someone's Facebook page, but bombs only destroy, they cannot create anything meaningful or life giving. If the truth is really important enough for, for, for people to believe it, if you and I really think that this truth is going to add value to their lives, then it's going to require finding a lot of common ground first so we can start planting these small seeds of truth. You know, maybe there are some people in your life right now that you can't talk to about certain issues. Maybe Thanksgiving is super uncomfortable. Can I maybe just suggest that you might not be the person God has called to speak truth into that person's life right now? Maybe you can release yourself from the pressure of having to change someone's mind or change someone's opinion. Maybe right now the best thing you can do is discover what God has to say about that person. Maybe you need some space to remember that they are created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully, just like you. Maybe you need time to remember that they're carrying their own baggage and their own sins, just as you're carrying your own. Or maybe you're in a place right now where you can start making small investments in a person by talking with them, not to change them, but to discover everything that you have in common with them and then to see what God does next. Because when we've spent time investing in relationships, when we've spent time investing in building common ground, something amazing can happen. In the same interview, Daryl Davis continues by saying, As you build upon these commonalities, you're forming a relationship. And as you build on that relationship, you're forming a friendship. That's what happened. I didn't convert anybody. They saw the light and converted themselves. Here in John chapter 8, that's precisely what Jesus models with the Pharisees. He didn't convert them. He didn't shout at them. He didn't argue with them. He didn't cancel them. And he probably didn't change their minds about how they felt about adultery or even how they felt about Jesus. But for, for, for this conversation in this moment, by helping them to relate to this woman, the men changed their own minds. They didn't run off immediately, not all of them at least. The imagery of the men walking away from oldest to youngest is that of a slow trickle. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus doesn't really debate anyone. Now, there are times when he gets very sharp, very direct with the Pharisees. But he simply tells the truth and gives people the time and space to wrestle with it. He gives people the space and time to come to their own conclusions, to make up their own minds. In John chapter 8, Jesus simply speaks the truth to the Pharisees and he continues doodling on the ground. There's something profound in the way that Jesus speaks the truth. And I think as we become the the kind of people who speak the truth in love, I think another important lesson is to trust the truth. When I tell somebody about something that I think could dramatically change their lives, even when I tell somebody something that I think could improve their lives by like 1%, I I want them to experience it right away. So when I tell you about a television show that I think you're going to love, I want you to immediately go home and watch it. Take tomorrow off. Just binge the thing. When I tell you about a book... And I love books. When I tell you about a book that I think that you will love, I want to stand over your shoulder and make sure you put it in your Amazon cart. And I think that's what we do because we enjoy something. We want other people to enjoy it as well because of the life that we have in Jesus. We want others to experience that same life, don't we? Because we believe that the Bible is God's revelation of himself and his created order because we actually get to know God, who he is, what he's like, and what he thinks about us. We want others to benefit from that same knowledge. But I can't tell you how many times I tell someone about an amazing movie or an amazing show or book only to get a text message a month or even a year later from that same friend who says, hey, I finally got around to that thing you told me about forever ago. Lol. <sighs> like, the thing is, it can take people a, a lot of time to make a change that's relatively easy, like watching a new show or reading a new book. So, how much time will it take for people to make a change in the way that they think or the way that they behave when it comes to something they have been taught or have been in the habit of doing for years? There's a lot of hard truth in the Bible. And uh, personally, it's not done changing me. It is not done challenging me. I still have arguments with God. I still want things my own way. And and I bet that it's not done changing you or challenging you. When speaking the truth in love to others, uh, uh, again, we have to trust the truth. We can't rush the truth. We, we can't get people to believe the truth on our schedule. We can't convert anyone. We simply communicate the truth and wait. We have to trust that the truth will do its work. The Pharisees didn't all leave at once, but one by one, they all came to the same conclusion. And one by one, they all converted themselves. The author of Hebrews writes. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You and I are not responsible for getting anybody to believe the truth. You and I are responsible for just communicating it as clearly, as simply, as faithfully, and as lovingly as we can. And we trust God with the rest. We trust the Holy Spirit to move in other, people, other people's hearts as, as softly and as patiently as He moves in our own. Holy Spirit, thank you for moving patiently and softly. We trust that the truth of God's word is strong. We trust that it's strong enough to stand up to any argument so we don't have to argue with anyone. We trust that the truth of God's word is sharp enough to pierce even the hardest heart, so we don't have to break anyone's heart. And we trust that in the name of Jesus, in the powerful, in the mighty name of Jesus, that every knee in heaven and on earth will bow, so we don't have to punch down on anyone. Because we trust the truth. How do we speak the truth in love? How do we get the Bible right and love right? I think, as always, a great place to start is by following Jesus. I think this is an entry-level way to speak the truth in love. And a great place is by finding common ground in which we can eventually start to plant seeds of truth. And common ground is the place we return to again and again, especially when conversations get heated or messy. And once we have earned the opportunity to speak the truth in love, let's trust the truth. Let's trust that it is living and active. Let's trust the Holy Spirit to move like only he can move. Let's be a people Let's be a church, Life Point Church, that gets love right and the Bible right. And the worship team is about to come out and we're going to sing. But, man, my, my prayer is that as sweet as our words are in worship, that every day the words that we use would be a sweet sound to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are perfect, you are loving, and you are incredibly patient with us. And I know in my own life I am slow to learn, and oftentimes I can be quick to speak. And God, I thank you for all the ways that you have shown your love and your grace to me. And I I want everyone else to enjoy that same grace, that same love, that same life that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. And, And thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Thank you for revealing who you are and what you're like and how much you love us. And God, there, as you know, are a lot of important conversations happening in our world right now. And I pray that you would give us the words to speak when we need to speak them. That you would give us confidence and boldness, but that you would also give us confidence and boldness in our love. God, when people look at Life Point Church or when you look down on us, I hope that You can say, and our community can say, now there is a church that gets love right and the Bible right. Give us strength to find common ground and give us patience as we trust your truth. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.